Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. District of Conservation is sponsored by Real Camo Girl, a lifestyle brand for women who love the great outdoors, spanning from hunting, fishing, foraging, archery, shooting sports, and the like. We are proud to have them as a sponsor, and you can learn more about them at www.realcamelgirl.com and follow them all across social media to learn more and get involved. Welcome to episode 29 of District of Conservation. For today's episode, I am speaking with Stephen Gutowski, a staff writer at The Free Beacon. Stephen is someone I've known over the years because we've had a lot of crossover in both politics and shooting sports, and he is arguably one of the most resourceful, knowledgeable, must-follow people when it comes to gun policy and gun-related news, if you weren't already aware of that so far. Stephen is an up-and-comer. More people are starting to cite him in their reporting. He does a really good job of demystifying existing law as it relates to firearms, what the consequences of certain gun legislation could be, good or bad. And he has a very good pulse on all things firearms, firearms industry, and gun safety. He's also a NRA certified firearms instructor and tries his best to help other journalists learn about true gun safety. I think you'll enjoy our exchange. It's kind of long, but hold tight, listen through it, and you'll like it. Check it out. Steven, thank you so much for joining District of Conservation today to talk about all things gun-related and your reporting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I feel like it's a long time coming for you to be interviewed more so because you do so much of reporting and you have such a compelling story. And I figured I could use whatever platform through this podcast and eventually social media when we distribute this for people to learn more about your story and and why they should follow your musings. And what would you say sparked your interest in shooting sports? How did this all start? Was it something you've been doing for a long time, Uh, a particular event occurred and and led you to do this. What, what's your story behind taking an interest in shooting sports? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny. I um, I grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, Chester County, and um, you know the kind of place where you know they they give you the first day of hunting season off from school uh, and that kind of thing. I had a lot of friends who hunted, but um, but I'd never actually shot a gun until uh, after college, actually. Interesting. Yeah, until I started working down in uh, D.C. Um, When I was, you know, so I was actually involved in writing uh, well before I was involved with uh, firearms at all. Um, You know, because I had started writing about politics and covering politics in college uh, through my own blog that I had started. And then I went to work for the Media Research Center right after college. And it's actually there. where they, they have a, like a fun day, which is like one day. I remember a, that from my internship too there. <laughs> right. Have like one day a year, they'll, they'll take the whole staff out to do something fun, like go to an amusement park or bowling or, or something like that. And so my first one there, so this was, I don't know, 2009 maybe. Oh my um, gosh. Again now. <laughs> um, but that, uh, they just had like a fun day at, um, at the boss's like mountain house, uh, Brent Bazell. And, and we went out, we all went out to his like vacation house in the mountains and just played a series of different games, like just sort of team building activities, I guess you might say, not even team building, just like competitions and just fun. Uh, and then one of the things they had to do there, cause you know, this was out in, in the countryside, uh, was, uh, just some skeet shooting with the, and looking back on it now, knowing more about firearms, it's just kind of funny because, uh, like, it was skeet shooting with, like, a pump-action 12-gauge, um, which is not ideal. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like a 16-inch barrel pump-action shotgun. Um, 
probably like a Remington 870 or something like that. And, you know, I used to be afraid of guns, um, mainly afraid of recoil, which I think is common for a lot of new shooters. Yes, I had that fear too. Yeah, I was just afraid that not not about shooting myself or shooting somebody else, but about the recoil hurting, you know. And it didn't like even though like a twelve gauge is, has a pretty good kick to it generally, um, it, you know, it didn't hurt, and it was like this is fun, you know, hitting the clays. Is, it's a lot of fun. It's actually probably a really good first shooting experience because reactive targets, uh, as you know, are, are a lot more fun to shoot than just shooting paper. Um, and so that, that from there, I just it became sort of something that I was just interested in, Maybe mainly like that sort of skeet shooting with a, with a pump-action shotgun because I went out, the first gun I ever bought, um, it was from Dix, and it was, uh, uh, it was a partner, H&R partner pump. So 20-gauge uh, pump-action shotgun. It was an eight, the Remington 870 clone, like a cheap knockoff, basically. It was like $220 or something like that um and it was uh, like a 26 inch barrel uh i still have it because it's basically a completely worthless gun <laughs> you couldn't sell it <laughs> or anything. it's totally useless it may be the fact that it came it may be the fact that it came from dick's sporting goods but <laughs> yeah right too this was before you know the, all the controversies with them but right but uh you know it's just like a place that had guns that I knew about. I didn't know anything about gun stores or anything at the time. So <laughs> that's where I went. Um, but the gun is just like, and I bought this for skeet shooting, which makes no sense at all because it's super heavy. It's a, it's a, it's a 870 knockoff. So it's like very, very heavy, even compared to an 870. And it's just completely useless. Gun. I mean, I had fun with it shooting skeet in my mom's, on my mom's farm, like, just in the backyard. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but that's, that's how I got into it. And then just from there, you just, as anyone with, uh, who's sort of becomes, you know, really into guns knows once you start, you just sort of, it can snowball from there. And that's what happened for me. I just became more and more interested in firearms and now more knowledgeable about them. And then, you know, that intersected with my writing, um, from time to time when I was at the media research center, um, and then once I got to the Free Beacon, uh, the Washington Free Beacon, where I am now, uh, you know, the, they're very uh, focused on beat writing. So they want people to develop a, a beat and expertise in a certain, uh, you know, area. And so for me, that sort of was a natural fit of like, I enjoy, gun, you know, shooting. I enjoy the shooting sports. Um, I know quite a bit about them now. Uh, you know, I was learning more and more as it was going along. And then the beat is really very undercovered. Um, and so absolutely. Was, yeah. Yeah. It was just sort of a natural fit to go, uh, right into just writing more and more about firearms policy and firearms, uh, politics. Yeah. And it's really kind of blown up for you in a very good sense, especially your beat at the Washington free beacon. And, do you just exclusively cover for those who may be unfamiliar because I'm a junkie in this regard because you, I'll see your stories and I, I tried my best to follow closely with your musings and your reports. But for those who are non-consumers of your articles or don't follow your beat closely, uh, what does your content tend to stretch between? Is it simply legislation? Is it response to any gun related news, mass shootings, incidences or proactive shooters, good guys and good girls with guns who fend off bad girls and bad guys with guns. Exactly what type of stories do you cover for those who are unfamiliar? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, pretty much anything that's of a national interest, right? Um, you know, so kind of a mix of all that stuff that you just mentioned, whether it's gun defense stories because those are very undercovered uh mm -hmm. in, in the media exactly yeah um, and yeah they and they happen all the time and a lot of them are very interesting um you know based on the circumstances or who's who's defending themselves from who or you know what whatever it might be it could be an old lady defending herself from you know a, a young kid that broke into her home um that you know i wrote about that one a case like that recently um you know, a woman defending herself from an abusive ex, um, you know, boyfriend that happens 
fairly frequently. And it's just something that you don't, you don't hear a lot about um, in the media. Obviously, what you do hear about is mainly, um, you know, mass shootings. That's, that's the, one of the only times that and legislation are the only times you really hear the media ever talk about guns. Um, Selective reporting, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. um, I mean, I don't, I don't cover a lot about mass shootings because it's just like, generally speaking, I'm not going to have anything of, uh, of note that's going to be an exclusive for me in, in a situation like that, because the, that get, those get blanket coverage. I mean, sometimes I'll write about, usually in those situations, it's, it can be informative to know like how they got their guns. Um, was there a failure of the system as there very often is, uh, the most recent mass shooting, um, in the United States was probably the, the Aurora shooting in, in Illinois. And that's another example of where, uh, the shooter was, was able to purchase guns through, uh, the legal process, even though he was prohibited because of mistakes made by law enforcement. And this is sort of a very common theme. It's something that, that I write about quite a lot when we're talking about, you know, mass shootings. But other than that, you know, there's not a lot for me to write about that would be, that would add to the story, you know? No, because a lot of people identify the shooter, but I'm so glad more people, I have not seen, thankfully, the name of this perpetrator in New Zealand, mm-hmm. which is nice. It's refreshing that people block that out and have refrained from giving any credence to his evil act. But in the United States, journalists, many journalists, unfortunately, have the gumption to reveal the name, try to find some connection to a particular, especially conservative or Republican political tie. They're just so they're so particular in trying to find some connection and just gloss over just objective coverage of any failures that could have been in place, like you mentioned. And it's just so much. And I'm glad it's not just all of us who have a gun beat. Don't just simply focus on that. I don't touch that mass shooting issue just because it's not my place. And we don't know all the fine details and it's very sensitive matters and it stokes a lot of fire. So I try not to (laughs) write about those stories. I leave it to the professionals or I wait for police reports to come out just because it's just adding too much to the noise, unless if it has to be for accuracy. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm, I try to uh, avoid naming the shooters as well um, as much as is possible. And, And it's almost always unnecessary to actually write their names out. Um, you know, there is there is certain certainly like you know a debate you can have about the newsworthiness of of talking about these people and their backgrounds and their manifestos and things like that. Is that counterproductive? Uh, you know, there, there's certainly a, a, a debate you can have about it, um, and and I think a lot more people are a lot more news organizations are deciding to limit at least use of their pictures and their names, which I think is a good idea because there have been. Um, the, you know, people have made very persuasive cases that that actually can contribute to copycats uh, mass shootings. Yeah. Copycats. yeah. Uh, because a lot of these people have um, had, you know, a lot of people who carry out these sorts of random, um, you know, public shootings uh, do have, uh, you know, an admiration for people who had done it before them. Um so there's there's certainly something to be said about that, and something to be that's something to be grappled with, I think, by the entire news industry um, and how these these shootings are covered. But but beyond that, you know, I think the that is, they mass shootings produce so much more coverage surrounding surrounding firearms than anything else um, that I think it's an issue. Like it, it it makes sense to cover those stories. They're obviously big stories. They're sure. Important. Um, they're, they're, you know, life-changing events for a lot of people and, you know, you don't want to under, undercut that and say that no. we should just not talk about these, but, right. but there are plenty of other topics within, um, you know, the, the scope of firearms as a, uh, you know, as a focus that, that go uncovered at all. And what are your favorites to write about? Would you say underreported topics relating to firearms? Yeah, I mean, I think like trying to tell stories of people in the firearms community um, and what what their views are and what why they uh, believe the things they believe, why they're 
interested in firearms. Um, you know, how truly diverse that community is, um, is another thing that I like to focus on. Like this is, this is not a niche community. It's a, it's mo like, uh, you know, almost half the country have a gun in their home. Um, and I think there's a lot of stereotyping that goes on that, that can be broken up pretty quickly. Um, if you actually, uh, present people with, you know, stories from, uh, these different groups of gun owners, um, you know, the liberal gun club is one that I did recently their their annual meeting, uh, they had in Florida. I went and talked to them, you know, pink pistols would be another one, uh, of the gay and transgender, um, gun owners, uh, women is certainly, a, as, as you know, a, that you talk about a lot, um, is a very uh, large demographic and one of the fastest growing uh, in the gun owning community. So, uh, you know, I'm going to the uh, A Girl and a Gun um, training conference next month um, to talk more about that. Look, to, you know, Where is that being held? That's uh, that's going to be near Burnett, Texas, which is outside huh. of Austin. And sort very of cool. Country. Yeah, it seems like it could be a really cool event. Honestly, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it was. And they're having you present on a topic or giving a speech. What what type? What's the no, nature of the talk? No, I'm just going to cover the. Oh, you're covering it. Nice. Yeah, I'm covering the event. Um, you know, it's an all female shooting league, and it's their yes. uh, their annual uh, conference or or you know meeting or it's really like a bunch of it, really what it is is a bunch of training from what I can tell. Um, you know, I'll see more when I'm there and I'll, obviously I'll be reporting on it. It will be, and we'll be done just like I did with SHOT Show this year. Are you going to make a video? Like um, what you guys did at SHOT Show? Like social media coverage, um, for sure. So like a lot of live stuff on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so people will be able to see, uh, follow along that way, which is something that's a little bit new that we're trying out, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, but uh, it's going to be, you know, that's that's another event where it's like, here's a bunch of women uh, all train, like doing a bunch of really high level training courses um, over the course of like five days out in the Texas Hill Country. Um, you know, and here's what they think and here's their point of view, because um, it just doesn't get covered much uh, outside of like the gun trade magazines. Yeah, it's very true. And unless if you have a gun bent or you're someone who's very studious on the issue or you're genuinely objective, you don't see much coverage. And I want that to segue into this next question and some thoughts I have for you, especially as a journalist as a whole, sadly, have an aversion to reporting on accuracy as it relates to our industry. And you, myself and several others have if we're responding to, let's say, someone falsely labeling or using the, um, they're using malapropism when it comes to labeling a firearm part or a firearm designation. And they're applying these weird standards or they're misidentifying various different firearms. And they're not using the accurate facts when it comes to weapons used in certain incidences, inflating certain statistics. So what, what do you believe about the state of reporting when it comes to firearms? Is there an interest among people to start covering it fairly, or are they just going to continue to, to do this and people just simply have to rely on someone like you? Uh, why, why do you think they continue to do this despite being proven time and time and again that their reporting is inaccurate, uh, that they're kind of doing people who are law-abiding, most, most gun owners are law-abiding, as we know, doing the law-abiding gun-owning community a disservice by lumping them in with criminals. That's often the case whenever we see these tragic mass shootings unfold. Uh, is there any sort of redemption for them, or are they just going to be more po polarized and, and having a, a stake in seeing uh, rights taken away, manufacturers being sued, things of that sort? So what are your thoughts on journalists and their coverage of guns? Yeah, um, well, you know, uh, and even I, I do this from time to time, but I, I would say that the media, even the mainstream media, larger outlets, major media, um, isn't a monolith, right? Um, certainly mm -hmm. there's people within um, any news organization that are going to be, we, we certainly are aware of people within news organizations who are just simply anti-gun, like they, they're just aren't going, aren't willing to 
um, learn more about the subject. They're, they also tend to be very ignorant of the facts and, and uh, you know, terminology and, and so forth and law. But deliberately, yeah, they know, will butcher stuff. Not, like, it's just like <laughs> they, it's some people you're not going to reach, right? There's some people that no. don't want to change. They don't want to get better. They don't care to get better. Um, uh, even if their job is to report the news, like some, some people are unreachable. However, I don't think that's most people in, inside the industry. I think that most journalists want to report accurately and fairly. I, I think they, that's my, um, that's my take on, uh, the industry. The biggest problem that I see personally is the lack of understanding and knowledge and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that most uh, news organizations simply don't view firearms as uh, a, a topic that they want to dedicate resources to uh, specifically, right? Like most papers, most news organizations have like a labor reporter, right? And their whole job is just to report on uh, labor news, unions, um, and labor disputes and so forth. Uh, or they might have, um, you know, a, a Capitol Hill reporter or even a, a reporter specific for the Senate. Uh, like, uh, you know, there's a number of great ones. Sungmin Kim at WAPO. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole group of reporters just dedicated to covering Capitol Hill. Uh, and that's all they do. And they get very good at doing that. And they know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about because that's their job. There's no really, no one in major media whose job is specifically firearms policy and politics, right? That generally that gets shifted off. Um, to the crime to reporters? A general assignment reporter or crime. crime. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a few. I think there's one gal at uh, Guardian, well, her name yeah, is Lois. There's Lois Beckett at The Guardian. She's yes. probably the exception to the rule. If you consider The Guardian to be sort of major media, uh, you know, which it's certainly a, a major paper in, in, in you know, the UK. Um, oh, sure, yeah. It has a sizable American paper as well. I think the AP has a crime reporter, too, if I'm not mistaken. I met her once at SHOT Show a few years ago. But other than that, I haven't really seen have, anyone. Yeah, they all, yeah, they all have, like, crime reporters. But that, mm-hmm. they don't tend to be firearms reports they, they report on no. crime you know like mm-hmm. yes firearms can be involved in crime and they tend to look at the, they tend to only cover firearms uh, crime used criminally stories. yeah so but that's one issue is like that that's that doesn't really uh bode well if your goal is to have um you know an informed and a reason uh, report on firearms policy or firearms uh, politics because the, that's out. Yeah, firearms crime has an effect on that, but it's just not the main focus of what a crime reporter uh, does, right? So that they might have a good understanding of how the criminal justice system works and how somebody who gets charged with a gun crime might actually what how that how much time they might actually end up serving if they're convicted. You know what I mean? Like, but. They're not necessarily experts on how the guns involved, or no, not the or, mechanics, or gun culture, or anything associated. Yeah, or the the even the like basic arguments of each side in the in the gun control debate. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I think that's a major problem. Personally, is that they're just not that interested in covering this issue that well. It just doesn't. It's not a high priority for them. And so when these events do happen that they decide to cover, you know, you're dropping in a reporter from like 30,000 feet. There's no idea what they're doing. No idea about the issues at play. It's just the, the next story that they're supposed to cover. And so, yeah, they're going to make a lot of mistakes a lot of times. And, and there's like, uh, you know, I, I think it's true that generally speaking, um, most reporters at major outlets are personally liberal and, um, so they're exposed much more often to liberal talking points on guns and probably on every issue. Um, and maybe they don't even realize or know what the other side of things are. Mm-hmm. And so they just sort of will pass along talking points that they hear. 
that's a problem too. I mean, that's a, that's a problem in any sort of reporting you're doing is just sort of going with whatever, whatever you personally have uh, come to believe on a, a given topic without even understanding what the other side of things are just to see, you know, if you're being fair in your reporting. Um, so that, that becomes an issue. But I mean, if we had a few good gun beat reporters, um, I think that would improve things a lot. And I think it could improve. And I, I do think that the reporters who um, get assigned these stories and maybe not experts or it's not their beat also could be helped, um, you know, with, with education. That's what I try to do personally um, when I can. Um, you know, they're, they're, yeah, you you created a guide to explain some simple nomenclature related to farms. I think it was a a presentation or a PDF, and you were telling people like, "Hey, go here, so you can enhance your reporting. You could learn how to properly identify a fire the firearm used in this in question or this firearm in question." And and you've created uh, guides like that. And that was something I also wanted to. Uh, ask you about too about your interest in doing this because you're also a NRA certified firearms instructor and you have an interest in not only having people learn more about firearms but even fellow journalists and we've talked about this off air uh, in great detail too about how you've trained some of your colleagues and some other people but have people from uh, mainstream media outlets expressed interest to you to learn more in and off the field talk to you pick your brain has yeah. there been some curiosity to do that? And in, in which outlets, if, if you're at liberty to say that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can't, you know, I always say I'm not, I can't discuss specific people because these oh, are sure. off the record conversations. Just sure, to sure. So, you know, just because uh, that way more reporters could, uh, will be comfortable with talking with me. You know, so I'd be sure who it was or what story or whatever like that. But, but I generally, certainly, I could say that absolutely. Um, major media reporters have come to me and asked me for advice on, on stories they're writing or, or like just to point them in the right direction for, uh, you know, the proper resources for whatever they're writing about or, or even reaching out to the proper, um, you know, uh, representatives of different uh, gun rights groups or, or whatever so they can get their perspective, uh, which is great. Um, so I have personally seen that happen plenty of times, not a bunch of times, probably – every major media outlet you can think of has come to me at one point or another, hmm. um, you know, with these questions, it's not like every day, but it, it, it's happened. And, and certainly I know that a number of, um, you know, even very uh, famous reporters have uh, shared that document you're talking about. It's a Google doc. It's a presentation that I developed um, as part of the class that I teach in, um, you know, when I teach that NRA course, so I, I have the certificate. It's you know, it's it's almost like getting a degree from a from a college <laughs> or whatever. It's, it doesn't mean that right. I'm part of the NRA. I'm not an NRA member or anything. I just have this certification to teach this class because, and this is another thing a lot of people don't realize, but the the NRA is the largest gun safety organization in the country. It is the world, really. Mm -hmm. um, that's not just a talking point. I mean, they they are it's the in the numbers. Too. Yeah, I mean, they're the ones who do the training. They, they, the ones who have the classes. So, you know, there really isn't, there really aren't a lot of other options. There's one or two. USCCA does it, does uh, gun safety courses as well. Although those are mainly, you know, concealed carry classes, obviously, um, because it's the United States Concealed Carry Association. But, uh, mm -hmm. but the NRA is, they're, they're the largest gun safety training um, organization. Um, and that's all done through their their uh, C three their non their non political um, arm. So, um, but I teach that course. It's the basic pistol course that I'm qualified to teach, and that qualifies you for a concealed carry license in Virginia. So, um, we I teach this at the Free Beacon to uh, my colleagues there who are interested in it. Um, and then as part of that, I developed this uh, an additional lesson for because the basic pistol course is is just basic. It's a it's a gun safety course. It just teaches you how to handle a handgun safely and shoot it accurately. Basically that that's the, that's what the goal of that course is. Um, so it doesn't really do any, it doesn't really tell you anything about how to, how to deal with common 
issues that come up when you're reporting on firearms, right? So sure. I developed another class, uh, an additional lesson, an addendum to put into that class when I teach it to my uh, my colleagues at the Free Beacon, and so that that's what I I share with uh, you know the public and with my with other journalists from other organizations. I haven't been able to offer that class to anyone outside of the Free Beacon yet. Um, although that's something I'm looking into, um, something that I'm, I'm trying to uh, uh, come up with a way to do. So um, certainly, hopefully in the future, I'll be able to have a more hands-on hands -on role uh, with teaching other journalists more about firearms, how they work, uh, the basics of covering, uh, you know, gun control and, and gun rights issues. Um, a lot of the terminology that comes up when you're doing that and what it actually means, um, those kinds of things. Um, and hopefully that'll be uh, something that I'm able to, to offer to, you know, other journalists in the future. That's a very ambitious goal. I, I think many of them will gravitate to it if you make it available and if they're interested, which I think a growing crop of them are. I think those who don't typically go on TV, the more, closely the, the, the more uh, beat journalists who do mostly writing and are not really out to get attention. I feel like they care more. And we saw this with our experience with time magazine. I felt like a lot of them were really hard pressed to report accurately about all the different perspectives on guns yeah. uh, that they tried to portray. And I think for those listening, uh, they can distinguish between the broadcast journalists who are, can be sensationalists regardless of where you stand politically on both sides, you see it. But I think if you talk to, reporters that are not so visible and that's more common than believed. I think a lot of them, if they're, they come about it earnestly and they're not pushy, a lot of them are pretty fair. Um, and, and especially as we saw with our time magazine, uh, well, experience there. Time magazine was, was very good in the way that they handled their, the guns in America project. Um, you know, I was very impressed with, with, with them. Cause obviously going into it, I was, I'm sure just like you was fairly skeptical about what it was going to be like. Um, but I think that they proved that, yeah, even a, a major magazine like Time can can fairly um, depict the viewpoints of of uh, people on all sides of the issue. Yeah, it was beautifully done, and I wish other publications would follow, follow that model too. It's a shame that you don't see that often, and they really did set the standard, I think, for modern-day reporting on that issue without over sensationalizing. They just really let people communicate their thoughts as raw and as emotional and as passioned, impassioned as, a, as it should be when you're trying to captivate people's voices or capture people's voices, voices, I should say of all different perspectives. And uh, if, if more people followed that model, I think dialogue, and I believe you believe this too, that dialogue would be a lot more productive. People wouldn't have tensions flared so much things would be a lot calmer rational and we'd see fewer twitter spats and arguments <laughs> and things of that sort but it, it's just hard because digital media like it serves a purpose and it should foster dialogue but i think a lot of the productive conversation and i think you believe this too uh can take place offline yeah. and and really lead to public policy issues being solved more readily and, and easily, or at least people coming down to sit at the table and talk when they normally wouldn't do that. And given what you've seen initially in your coverage for 2019, because there's a lot of news related to gun control measures uh, and then pro-gun legislation, what do you think is going to be expected coming from Congress? Because I know in the House they passed HR8, uh, which related to universal background checks. They also passed did they pass yet, or is it still stuck in committee HR one 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 two, the one yeah, that would uh, remove the oh, that did pass as well, uh, the th the removal of the three day safety valve for background checks when purchasing guns? Yeah, yeah that it bill. expands it to ten days. Yeah, to ten up to ten days. Yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> in the event of an emergency, uh, if someone needs to to have a firearm uh, due to a threat to their life or something of that nature. Uh, but given kind of what's passed, what's kind of trending, obviously the Connecticut Supreme Court case that's that gave the go ahead for the Sandy Hook families, victim or victims families to sue Remington. What do you think is going to be on the radar that listeners and other observers should be following closely? What should people be aware of or expect to be deliberated either in the halls of Congress, in the news media in the Supreme Court, various state legislatures? What do you think is going to be 
uh, put out there? And what's the likelihood of certain laws drastically changing? Well, I think most of the action is going to be at the state level um, because, you know, at the federal level, we still have divided government. So mm-hmm. it's unlikely that any of these gun control bills that Democrats pass through the House are going to even get a vote in the Senate. Um, Which is a sigh of relief for us. <laughs> I think all of us who are vested uh, don't want to see any work there. But but yeah, proceed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's like the big... Um, the big safety valve, like you said, for, mm-hmm. for, um, for if you're a gun rights supporter, obviously, um, I think the biggest thing you would worry about is, you know, if, if there was another major mass shooting that garnered a lot of, uh, attention and political, um, uh, you know, support for gun control, that could be an issue. Um, the House has already passed the universal background checks bill, so they wouldn't. The Senate could move on it anytime they wanted to, um, and if if there was enough political pressure, that might happen uh, and it might pass. And you know, the president has been sort of mixed on the issue so far, at least rhetorically. And you know, for the most part, yeah. it's been pretty solid in terms of nominating judges that gun rights supporters like. Um, that's been the biggest issue, obviously, if you talk to any, uh, gun rights, um, leaders, that that's what they'll tell you. That's been the biggest issue is the judges. Um, but obviously he's also expressed support for different gun control measures in the immediate aftermath of Parkland, which he then also, um, walked all that back. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the only thing that he's done so far is the bomb stock ban, which he ordered Mm -hmm. changes to. Yeah, he essentially unilaterally banned bump stocks. Um, there's still several gun rights groups that are fighting that in court, uh, although they haven't gotten anywhere thus far. Uh, and the, the ban goes into effect at the end of this month. So actually a couple mm-hmm. of days, 26th, I believe, uh, less than a week. Um, so essentially at that point, anyone who has a bump stock, and supposedly I think they sold a couple hundred thousand of those things, if the estimates that I've seen, you know, all those people who don't destroy them or turn them in will be felons, in theory, at least. Yeah. Did they buy these in protest? Because I don't know anyone, and, and maybe you know more so than me, I don't know anyone who uses a bump stock, but principally, I don't support a ban because that just could be incremental towards banning other parts of guns. Like like I said, I don't see any utility, and I think most of us don't see any utility to them, but were these bought in protest? this upcoming ban you um, think or do, do yeah. people certainly some of them were uh i know mark walters the radio show host he bought one specifically uh at a protest um huh. and then uh, people had them before that though i mean they're just sort of this they're just sort of fun i guess i've shot i've shot one before it's just sort of a way of roughly um experiencing automatic fire without you know the expense of an automatic firearm because those are obviously highly regulated and difficult to mm-hmm. get a hold of outside of uh, you know rentals at certain specialized ranges in like Las Vegas or going to yeah or going to West Virginia where I did and mm-hmm. and the range owner had a, a fully automatic uh, rifle for us to target shoot sure. uh, long distance so that was interesting I mean and, and you don't really see those kinds of guns out in proliferation as much only like rarely will you see it or at special ranges mm-hmm. um but the main issue i think uh you know for the people who are suing over this is the idea that um the atf or the doj or the you know the administration trump administration can just sort of unilaterally redefine what a machine gun is so that mm-hmm. includes something that they don't like in this case it's bump stocks um, and they're just sort of throwing all logic to the wind to do it. They're just sort of saying, well, yeah, sure, you have to pull the trigger for each shot when using a bump stock, but that doesn't matter, I guess. Uh, you know, it's it's just sort of they don't have a great – and I've uh, written about this and asked the DOJ directly about it. And, uh, you know, personally I would say they don't have a great explanation for as to how – 
the bump, a bump stock could possibly fit under the current legal definition of a machine gun, which is, hmm. the, you know, the uh, one uh, one actuation of the trigger um, produces more than one mm-hmm. round fired, which is, yep. that, you know, everyone's sort of understanding of the difference between semi-automatic and fully automatic fire. Fully automatic, yeah. Uh, now, bump stocks, you know, the bump firing sort of blurs that line because you're you're pulling the trigger at a much faster rate than you otherwise would be able to um, through traditional shooting techniques. Um, but, of course, you can bump fire any semi-automatic gun with, without any sort of specialized stock. It's just bump stocks would make it somewhat easier to do. Uh, to pull off the technique. And so, I don't know. It, it, the real concern is like, if if they can just unilaterally write bump stocks into, you know, out of existence, basically, which is essentially what Trump said he wanted to do, uh, mm-hmm. basically word for word what he had said, you know, th- th- why couldn't they do that for literally pretty much anything? Any semi For like an AR-15. Any, any semi-automatics capable of bump fire so you could stay mm-hmm. well. They're all machine guns now and illegal. Yeah, and, and I think that logic could be applied to an AR-15, which is typically semi-automatic in built. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it could be apl- that same logic could be applied to any part. Uh, extended magazines, why do you need this? It's it, They could then justify somehow it's part of a machine gun, too, or some contorted logic, too. Uh, but also I want to pick your brain on, uh, we saw a lot of, red flag bills. I know there was a national one. I don't know if it's made any movement. Do you know if, uh, if I think Rubio co-sponsored it in the Senate and, um, that'd be the other thing that is worth watching at the federal level. There are red flag laws, uh, because there, I believe uh, Senator Graham has said he's going to schedule a hearing on that proposal. So, um, interesting. Yeah. Presumably, um, any sort of gun control or gun restriction um, passed in the Senate would probably become law because it would probably pass the House. And uh, you think it's signed by Trump? I mean, uh, you know, it's. I think if you got sixty votes in the Senate to pass some sort of red flag law, Trump would probably approve of it. My, that's just a guess um, because that would, if you got that many votes in the Senate, that means it's fairly popular among Republicans. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and Trump's the Republican president, so presumably, although that if issue Trump came out and was super against the bill, it probably wouldn't get to right. votes. Although state level, like here in Virginia, when our uh, state Senate and House of Delegates were both deliberating it, I believe it was uh, narrowly defeated in the House of Delegates, but in the state Senate. It even got Republican votes, and it, it further divided Republicans. And so I don't know if all Republicans are going to be lockstep in support of red flag laws, given a lot of the due process rights violations that are entailed with it, uh, it not enforcing it properly, and just other things. So I don't know what I haven't heard. I haven't heard any Republican. I mean, I know where some have state that are kind of wavering. I know Rubio has kind of gotten soft on the issue a little bit, and a few others don't know so much. But I don't see all Republicans unifying it, especially in the existing language. Well, it completely Um, depends on what the details of the bill are. Uh, You know, mm -hmm. the the NRA has supported in theory, red flag laws, but I don't think they've seen one that's passed thus far in the States that they actually supported once the details were out. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of concerns as you were just um, saying about, you know, due process protections about like if you're saying these people aren't are, are too dangerous to own a firearm, then you should probably do more than just take their firearms away. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one thing I've heard a lot. You know, it, essentially, if these people are really such a threat, a to danger to themselves and society, then you need to do more than just remove firearms from their possession. Like you need to put them in some put them in some sort of program, maybe even. You know, a lot of have them committed, you know, uh, and it's, there's a lot yeah, of there's also, for that. Yeah, there's also the concern of uh, if it's going to be just family members or if it could be anyone. I think in Virginia they defined it as yeah. uh, whether your family member or significant other. 
But I think in uh, in Maryland, that case was just really egregious. Newly um, after it went into effect, and the gentleman in question just like died without being read his his rights, and they found him to be a threat. And maybe obviously he shouldn't have pointed the gun at at the cops, but but still, I think it they went out of the they went um, outside of the parameters of the law and didn't give him his due process rights, even if he wasn't as perfect as he should be when, hand, when talking to the police. So that was a very dicey case and a, an example of it being misapplied um, there. But it, there, yeah, there is the question of like, who can report it? It could be anyone who thinks you're a present danger. Could it be someone vendettive? Uh, could it be this and that? And so it's interesting. Yeah. And I know, I think on a uh, triggered podcast, you had talked with, storm and Vespa about good laws that could happen if they were respectful of laws. And if, if they truly didn't infringe on people's rights and didn't seek to just simply cherry pick people and just say, we'll take your guns, but we'll not do any other action. Like people who are a true and present danger to themselves and others. So you, I think you argued that a, a reasonable red flag law bill could take place if the parameters are set correctly. Uh, but we haven't seen I guess any. That's the that's the question, though. Is like the basic concept. I think you've seen support. I th- you know, David Friendship National Review had written about it in the aftermath of Parkland. Of you know, these this essentially uh, temporary restraining order against somebody for uh, gun possession that maybe moves faster than some of the other options we have, like you know, um, committing someone from you know mental health reasons or even uh, even prosecuting them for, you know, other crimes that might make them prohibited. You know, I guess mm-hmm. the red flag laws, the basic concept is supposed to be that this is, um, this is a way to allow law enforcement to move more quickly while also protecting the due process rights of the uh, person who's accused of being a threat to themselves or others. Um, and that it's a temporary uh, solution. So it's, you know, even if there is some mistake made, I guess the the fact that it's temporary can be uh, some sort of reprieve at, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the, the problem comes in in the details of all this. Like, what exactly are the due process protections? Are they strong mm-hmm. enough? Because you're dealing with, obviously, a constitutional right, uh, taking away someone's constitutional right, even even temporarily, is a serious thing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, on top of that, you know, I've heard from people at the NRA where it's like, well, if we're all in agreement that this person is a serious threat to themselves, then we should do more than just take away their guns because they're, if, if they're that dangerous to themselves or others, then they need more help than that or they need more yeah. uh, intervention than just that. Like it, the idea that just taking away their gun is going to solve, solve whatever underlying issues there are. It's probably not necessarily true all the time. And so, um, you know, the details need to make sense, I guess, for you to, and, and they, my guess is you probably won't get to that point in the Senate. That's just a guess. Um, it's hard to say for sure. Um, but it's going to be something that sounds easy on the surface. Okay. Most people could probably agree that if someone's a, a threat to themselves or others, we could at least temporarily take away their their firearms after a court process, after after they've been given the rights to, uh, you know, confront their accuser and mm-hmm. show evidence. That, you know, there's evidence shown that that they're an actual threat to themselves or others. You know, after that process, but there's all these other questions that come in that that make it very complicated. Indeed, it really does, and I don't know if the people in Congress are serious about pining through those details. I think a few are, um, but many are not. They just want to be like, we just want to get guns out of the picture because we dislike them or uh, we support policies that are against us. We have to please our donors. And then they don't want to have any solutions when it comes to addressing how to mitigate crime and prevent it from happening again. And do you also think uh, we will see, and probably the likelihood is slim, but I just wanted to ask you about it, but will we ever see, the Hearing Protection Act or some semblance of that ever pass, likely not in this Congress because it's divided, or a concealed carry reciprocity bill too? I think that the political calculation would have to change a lot for either one of those bills to make it through. Um, 
you know, either the Republicans, you know, if Trump gets reelected and they recapture the House and they and they gain seats in the Senate, then yeah. Both of those pieces of legislation could pass. Yeah, sure. If you had Republican control of everything and they had a yeah. they had a good big enough majority. Mm-hmm. Sure. But other you know, anything other than that, probably not. I mean, it, or you'd have to see Democrats recalculate their position on on gun control because they've been trending, you know, clearly over the last five years, uh, five, ten years, towards stronger gun control and across the entire party. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not as much of a um, range anymore on the Democratic side. Uh they're all pretty lockstep in their positions, even the so-called new moderate ones. Yeah, it's definitely become something where Democrats used to be, you know, after the 90s, after Al Gore's failed campaign, that, you know, a lot of people thought that his uh, gun control positions cost him a lot of votes. And so Democrats recalculated after that um, and were less forceful on the issue, most of them. And you even had several who were pro-gun. Um, you know, endorsed by the NRA and so forth. Um, now, for whatever reason, after 2016, even though Hillary Clinton obviously lost, um, the same calculation hasn't occurred on the Democratic side of the aisle. They, they, for, no. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I don't, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that the gun control positions have helped them. Um, you know, after 2018, maybe they just assumed it didn't hurt them as much anymore. Cause you know, obviously they, they had a big victory in 2018 for the most part. Um, and so now they're sort of set in this idea that they don't, they don't, uh, need gun rights voters. Uh, and the, so um, unless they have a big turnaround or unless Republicans are able to, uh, recapture the house and take, a larger majority in the Senate, then I don't think you're going to see either um, concealed carry reciprocity or the Hearing Protection Act get passed um, at, at the federal level. I just, I just don't see it happening based on where the politics no. are at right now. You might see something from the courts. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. more likely that you have mm-hmm. a, uh, some sort of gun rights ruling from the Supreme Court. You know, they, they've already taken up there the are several. Yeah, there are several coming. Which ones are those, quickly? The New York case uh, deals with uh, New York City's um, restrictions on when and where you can possess a firearm uh, and, uh, you know, the, the very strict laws that they have there. And so that's that's the one they're looking at now. And given the makeup of the court and what the previous rulings have been from Gorsuch and um, Kavanaugh, you're, you're likely to see them make some sort of expansion on Heller and McDonald, I, I think. Um, but we won't know for sure until they actually issue their ruling, which should be soon, relatively soon. Yeah, there's so much moving parts <laughs> as it relates to all these legislation, because I forgot that they can issue out uh, rulings even before their big date in June. I always forget that it comes out in spring a lot or sometimes even in the fall all across the year. Mm-hmm. Um, to do that, but that, that's good to know. What would you say, this is something a bit more lighthearted, more so about the industry. What do you think having been a gun beat reporter, someone who's gone to shot show and been immersed in this culture for a good amount of time, at least a decade, close to a decade, what would you say that the industry could do better to lure in new consumers and active participants? Um, especially, I mean, I think the shooting sports participation is growing. There's been, not as many people are buying guns. They, you've seen that so-called Trump slump, but I still think more people are actively taking an interest to buy handguns. A lot of women, uh, people of different backgrounds, racial, socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, but what, what do you think the industry could do better that they're not already doing so far? Um, that's a good question. <clears throat> I mean, I, you know, from my point of view, like I was saying earlier, um, diversity of, uh, is important in the gun industry and also from a uh, political standpoint. Like the, mm-hmm. the less guns are seen as something that only a certain group of people are, are, should have or are interested in, um, the better for the gun industry and for the gun rights movement. Um, 
Yeah, more is better. Yeah, just like the, if if you see guns become something that's viewed as only a, like a white person thing or a white man, white guy. A Republican thing. Yeah, a Republican thing. You know, whatever, whatever you want, whatever small group. Oh, only, you know, old white guys own guns. And and the industry doesn't do anything or the movement, the gun rights movement doesn't do anything to counter that, anything significant. Uh, you know, that's a problem. I think, you know, if, if that becomes the general perception of it, that's going to mm-hmm. be real bad for uh the industry, but also for uh, gun rights, because then then it becomes a you know a minority of people who are who are interested in this thing and who are willing to um, you know vote for protecting it and so forth. Um, now, I although industry- I, I feel like yeah, I, I feel like sadly it's been made to be out like as only a Republican thing. That I mean, we're conservative leaning, conservative people. We vote Republican. But, like, I would love to see more Democrats. I feel like a lot of them feel like they can't explore it in the open or they don't want to because they're going to feel alienated. But I think all of us, even who those of us who have conservative predispositions, we want everyone. We don't care where you live, what your background is, how you vote, what you do in your personal life. We just care that you're law-abiding and you don't want to infringe upon our rights <laughs> and you want to learn and, and you want to take part in it and, and encourage others to be responsible gun users, users too. Sure. I mean, I, I think that certainly uh, anti-gun people are, don't like uh, try to enforce that impression that it's just something for old white people, old white mm-hmm. men specifically. Um, but I also think there are some people in the gun rights movement um, or even in the industry who, Enforce, reinforce that uh, idea as well, and they they have a very there are a few yeah us versus Ugh. them mentality um, that that get that they like that gets generalized to large groups of people. So you know, no one who is votes for a Democrat could possibly want to own gun. You know, you see this in some mm-hmm. corners, and I if that becomes the uh, overall opinion or point of view of the industry or the movement, then that's, that's self-limiting to a degree that I think is dangerous. Yeah. We don't want to be exclusionary. And I think, uh, different groups have been trying to appeal to different corners and different demographics, different corners of the United States and different demographics and, uh, people from all these different unique perspectives to, um, and there's no sign saying no one can come, uh, but but it is true that I think the industry does have to improve a little bit. But I would say some players are trying their best to do that. Yeah, um, I still- certainly think there are, the, like you were saying earlier, there are most people in the industry and most people in the movement are welcoming. Yes, I, I believe so. But oh, yeah. more is I've only encountered. Know. Yeah, I I've only encountered like a few really kind of backwards thinking people who think, Oh gosh, because you're a woman, you shouldn't be doing this. Or it's like, I avoid certain organizations because it's predominantly like older people who don't want to give responsibilities to younger people or, or whatever. It's like, I don't want to give money to something because not that I disagree with what they're doing. It's just like, I don't feel like I'm going to have a say or any footing in this. I'll support them from afar, but I don't see a need to, because they're not reaching out to young people like me or young people like us to, to get there, to be involved more. So, so some groups are, they kind of hog the advocacy, um, which they shouldn't do, but that's just natural with any organization that happens, unfortunately, sometimes. Mm. Uh, but I want to conclude this interview with you giving any links or last minute thoughts about firearms uh, how people can approach you, where they can read your musings, and how they can connect with you on social media. So, what are some final thoughts you have uh, before we f- finish the interview? Oh, you know, I, I think that um, I'm, you know, I'm just hoping that my efforts to inform people uh, are, are helping, and that I, you know, they are. I, I, I'm hoping to do more, you know, in the future as well with teaching. Uh, other reporters and um, and just trying to make the industry better, uh, the journalism industry, the 
news industry um, so that we can people can have a better, uh, more accurate view of what's really going on with this issue and, and what both sides really believe on it. Because I think that's, that's ideal. That's what's best. That's what's fair. Um, so, you know, that, that's going to be my continued uh, um, effort uh, going forward. And, uh, you know, I just, I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this stuff. Anytime. Uh, no, fun. I think, it, yeah, it, you, I feel like people see you in like really short appearances and they don't really know much beyond, you know, your hits on NRE TV or some little things. So I think it was worthwhile examining how dynamic you are as a reporter, as a thinker, as a gun enthusiast, just because you have so much that you offer. And I try my best to retweet you or put out your articles as best as I can, because I don't know everything. I feel like, you know, a little bit more than me in certain things. And, and I learn a lot from reading your pieces too. And I think even non-consumers of the firearms industry can learn a lot from you too. In addition to those of us who actively participate in it, just because you break it down really easily. You explain things without really putting a bias or just putting out technical terms or highlighting certain things and just making sure that things are accurate or people see a certain take uh, more readily than what would be distributed typically. Um, they typically see out there in the news media. So you do have, I mean, I think a lot of people have recognized that because you got a lot of retweets recently. You responded, I think, to Joe Scarborough and a few others <laughs> talking yeah, about yeah, how. It's funny. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one who's like this, but <laughs> I almost am afraid of my tweets going viral. Just because of your tweets have gone viral so much recently. Oh, it's just because of how much like you have to deal with. If you the replies, gets, yeah. If your tweet gets like seven thousand likes oh. or five thousand retweets or whatever, you're going to deal with so much interaction that it's just it's crazy hard to keep up with, especially someone like me who's like addicted to trying to respond to everybody, which is a terrible <laughs> impact. You can't respond to thousands of inquiries or, or replies. <laughs> that would be so try to either. It's not a good no. idea, but no. I do it anyway. <laughs> so I'm always afraid, like, oh, God, this is a popular tweet. It's going to be a, a nightmare to deal with. <laughs> but it's a good problem to have if people are genuinely – I mean, you see those stupid trolls that say all these stupid asinine things, and they call you names or say, like, you're bought by this interest, you're – and then others, I think, respond and say, like, you actually taught me something brand new. I didn't know this or you've enlightened me on the subject. So I think there are people within that clutter of rash abuse or rash users of Twitter, the 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 people who just get angry and, and angrily tweet all the time and yeah. they're not productive. There's but a lot I think, of those people out there, I'll tell you that. Yeah. yeah, but I think you use Twitter really well on this issue, especially just because um, people – can go to Twitter and cut through, let's say, general reporting, but see things in real time and, and see your reporting or your musings and then question what they've been presented and then be challenged to think that there's other things out there. They may be misinterpreted a report on something or uh, the mechanics of a firearm or something or the detail, important details to a story, or they didn't, don't know about the Supreme Court proceedings or bills in Congress. So you do have a valuable take on that. And that's why you've been retweeted a lot, especially just because uh, it just takes people time to realize that there are experts on the gun issue and you should be very proud to consider yourself one of them. And, and people should tout you as one. And I will certainly do that, continue to do that going forward just because it's, it's just, I mean, we're friends in, in real life too, but I just think even as like a colleague and someone who works with you in the industry, it's so important that your reporting gets out there just so it can combat the clutter <laughs> that we typically see out there with these reports. And it's fascinating stories too. It's not just responding to mass shootings as we talked about. You also do human interest pieces. You go to different conferences and you explain things in a really easy manner for people to digest and understand. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Yeah, anytime. I'm, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not just trying to, to, <laughs> to say things to please you. I sincerely mean it just because I've known you for a few years. We've had a lot of similar circles. We've been in similar circles in both politics and obviously now in the, in the firearms industry. And you, all of us kind of run into each other and we have to do better to promote one another. And that's what I want to do with, with a, whatever platform I have. But where can people connect with you so that they can follow you and 
keep track with what you're doing? Yeah, well, uh, the best place uh, is freebeacon.com. That's where all my stories are published. Um, and then also on Twitter, uh, you can follow me at Stephen Gutowski um, if you want to see some of my tweets. Because not, you know, obviously not everything I write goes onto the free beacon. The, the Joe Scarborough thread you were talking about that was all on Twitter. So uh, mm-hmm. there's lots of additional content there. Yeah, and people can follow you on. I think you have a Facebook page. Do you have a public one? And then uh, you have Instagram, which you just started to use. No, yeah, you don't I have do a public Instagram. Page. Uh, yes, they should follow you on Instagram. I, I will send people your way. We'll help grow it. We'll, I'll help you grow it. I'll, when I post the promo graphic, we'll get you some more followers too. Awesome. <laughs> but Twitter is the best place if you want to just follow my awesome. readings. Uh, that's the best public place to do it, for sure. And people can contact you for stories across the country Yeah, uh, if they have a tip. Sure. My, my email address is gatowski at freebeacon.com. If you ever any any, uh, any story tips, that's the place to send them. Uh, that's G-U-T-O-W-S-K-I at F-R-E-E-B-E-A-C-O-N dot com. That is wonderful. And we'll include these in the show notes for everyone to follow too because you can't click on the, the audio to, to listen to it when you're listening. But when people review the show notes, they'll be able to have access to this. And Stephen, I thank you again just because – it's a lot of fun talking to you as always. And I don't get to see you often. We live a few miles apart and all of our friends are kind of spread out apart. We all have busy lives, but I hope I get to see you again soon. At some point we should go to the range locally, (laughs) but you're so valuable for this issue. And I hope you know that you're appreciated by many people in the industry. And I think even in journalism too. So I hope uh, you continue your good work and more people can promote you and, and uh, highlight your work. It's really critical to the discourse on firearms and even just getting people interested in, in the industry as a whole. So thank you again for coming. I know this is really long, but I think people are going to enjoy what we had to talk about. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Anytime. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Steven and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to him too. He is a repository of information and such a good follow on social media. If you haven't had the pleasure of meeting him, if you go to SHOT Show and our annual meetings or any other outdoor industry related type conference that entails firearms or firearms legislation, Stephen is a person you ought to connect with. He knows so much. He has polished his knowledge over the years and he really does make a lot of this difficult stuff that is put out by the media or TV anchors a lot more comprehensible and he and he cuts through the mess of inaccurate reporting, misinformation and things of that sort. So if you haven't followed him already, I hope after this podcast you guys do connect with him, follow him, send him any pertinent tips as it relates to firearms. There's a lot of legislation happening across the country that is pretty detrimental to law-abiding gun owners and firearms industry experts. So he is going to keep tabs on that, much like we do here at District of Conservation. And why firearms? Why did I bring him on, essentially? Firearms and the excess taxes collected on them go back to conservation funding and fund the majority of that conservation funding. So it's imperative we talk about the industry and misconceptions associated with it and really do get people to think about the consequences of restricting access to firearms for law-abiding gun owners who will be punished by the actions of criminals who misuse firearms and use it for malintent. If you liked this episode and you liked the content you heard, please drop us a review at Apple Podcasts. You can download and subscribe to every previous episode there, and you can also find us on anchor.fm. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, too. Thank you guys for checking out this episode. See you next week.